Welcome to the Athlete Plus Network, and it is the official podcast network of the Institute for Coaching Excellence, a research and education outreach center in the College of Health and Human Performance at the University of Florida. I'm Kevin Carr, CEO of ProtoCO and industry professor at UF, and I serve as the host of the hit show podcast, How I Transition. The hit show is a podcast devoted to talking to current and former athletes on and off the court, field, track, or diamond, and the special people behind the scenes who support elite athletes, the teams, and organizations, and their stories to educate all listeners and advance the profession of coaching and the support of athletes. We're delighted to bring another great show today. Our guest is Clark Kellogg on The Hit Show. Clark's bio, I can go on and on about, and I will, but I want to let our listeners know it is the conversation and the exchange of experiences and the art and science of the many transitions of each of our guests is what we're about on The Hit Show. So Clark's bio, He's been married to the wonderful Rosie Kellogg since 1993, and they have three amazing adult children and three even more wonderful grandchildren. He's a native of Cleveland, Ohio, where he attended St. Joseph High School and distinguished himself as a student athlete and basketball player. He was a honor student in high school and made the McDonald's All-American team. He attended the, and I must say the, because they correct you at Ohio State, (laughs) the Ohio State University, earning a marketing degree. And he was a three-year starter on the team as a captain. He was drafted in the NBA in an animus uh, all-rookie selection and went on to play in the NBA. That's right, we have a NBA player here and today, you couldn't mess with his game. We're going to get into that. He also made an amazing transition from playing to broadcasting and being on some of the most prestigious networks, including his most present one, CBS, which we certainly see and know him as the voice and the face of one of the many great people that help us get through the madness of March Madness, of course. <laughs> Clark is also known, what you may not know, is the voice behind your kid's favorite game. That's right, NBA 2K video. He's the man behind that voice. He's a philanthropist, and he's done many great things. He's a part of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and he's done wonderful things in his work and leadership outside of the university and giving back to his university. I could go on and on. We're delighted to have you, Clark. Welcome to The Hit Show. Kevin, great to be with you, man. It's always a pleasure anytime we get to fellowship and conversate. So glad to be a guest on the hit show this afternoon. Wonderful, wonderful. We're glad to have you, Clark. First question I always ask my guests, who is Clark Kellogg? Oh, wow. You're going to leave it that open-ended, huh? Yeah. Man of God, gave my life to God through Christ back in 1986. And my wife would be on top of me if she heard that we had only been married since 1993. We actually got married in 1983. So Clark Kellogg is a man of God, the father of three adult children and three grandchildren, as you mentioned. Actually, we have a fourth grandchild on the way. Our oldest boy, who has two, is um, expecting, he and his wife are expecting their third, um, the second half of, of next year. 
So uh, we could have another one in the grandchildren quiver. But that's the essence of um, who I am, a man of God, a husband, a father, a brother to one brother and two sisters, a friend to to many, and a uh, passionate Black man that desires to have a positive impact on those that God gives me a chance to intersect and interact with. Man, that's a powerful intro in itself. So I'm going to get into the early years of you. Uh, What was it like to grow up in Cleveland, Ohio? Man, I was so fortunate, Kevin. My dad was a Cleveland policeman for over 40 years, Uh, was really a good athlete in his own right. Had the, he was outstanding all-around athlete. He excelled in football, basketball, and track. Actually earned a scholarship to college, but never in, never actually finished college. He, he went, but ended up not staying and took a job with the Cleveland Police Department back in the mid-60s and continued that until 2008. My mom was primarily a homemaker, domestic engineer, <laughs> I like to call her. She was at home with, with the five of us at that time. Um, had all of my grandparents in the city, all four of them, um, until I was in my early 30s. Um, so I had that network of support, aunts and uncles and cousins, um, a lot of family support and love growing up. My dad was an athlete, exposed us all, me and my younger brother and three younger sisters, um, to sports. I gravitated to hoops pretty early, fell in love with it, and the love affair continues. But I think about my, my upbringing as, as really solid, lower middle income class. You know, we had pretty much the, some of the things we wanted, but everything that we needed in terms of um, security, food, clothing, um, not affluent or rich by any means, but had um, all of our needs met and, mm-hmm. and a few of our wants satisfied. And so I'm grateful. And then I think back to being around cousins and aunts and uncles and my grandparents and having having um, functions that we gathered at. And obviously, the center of my world early on became hoops, but familial support and love was uh, was pretty steady. Not, not perfect. There was a sense of love and security that I'm grateful for. How would you say with all of that, sounds like you got an amazing family and beautiful at that and extended. How would your family describe you? Oh, man, that's a great question, bro. That's a great question. My siblings, I was the old, I'm the oldest of five. We recently lost mm. one of our sisters um, a couple of months ago, um, suddenly mm. and sadly. Um, but I was um, the oldest of the five. But I think they would describe me as um, different and sometimes disconnected. Okay. I was fairly focused at an early age, Kevin. I, um, I was, you know, I was motivated. And once I got into basketball, I really kind of could zero out, zero, um, mm-hmm. could zone out on occasion. Um, and so I think they would, they would, they would possibly probably describe me as uh, motivated, maybe disconnected, a little bit of a smart aleck. I've always loved words and I could turn a phrase pretty good, even as a youngster. So I would sometimes give them barbs and jabs verbally in kind of a sarcastic manner. <laughs> and I still do that on occasion. So I think that would probably, my folks would probably dis, um, describe me as um, straight-laced, eager to achieve and please. And uh, I would hope they, they, they would say I didn't give them much trouble. Tell us about when you started playing basketball and it really became the thing for you. When did you know 
you could play? Like, when was that moment? Were you playing with somebody? What was that like? Yeah, yeah. You know, I can't remember a specific moment, but as I fell, I fell in love with the game early. I mean, I was probably Mm -hmm. nine or 10 years old, Kevin. And my dad took me to, to games. He would work high school games as a moonlight security officer or policeman at high school football and basketball games. And I would tag along sometimes. And I loved the energy, the excitement, even then. And then he worked Cleveland Browns games. Him and his brother, who was also a police officer, they would moonlight on Sundays working Cleveland Browns games in the bleachers, you know, retrieving footballs that got kicked in there, keeping people under control. And I would tag along with him on those days. And so I had a love for sports early. And when basketball grabbed me, I think I was nine, 10 years old. And by the time I was probably 12, starting to get done with elementary school and move towards middle school, I saw that I was always able to play with Mm -hmm. guys a little older. I was taller. I was really tall for my age. So people thought I was 12 when I was only nine or 10. And I tended to play with guys that were a little older and I held my own. And that's when it started to click that maybe I could do something in this game. I had an aptitude for it. And then by the time I got to be in high school, my freshman year, that's when I knew because I was able to make the varsity and be a starter on varsity. And that's when I knew that I was a little different in terms of my growth and progression and where I was at my age. And then that's when it started to really click in that you might be able to take this thing somewhere. And I loved it. I love working at it. And I like the positive affirmation from being good at it. You know, in the neighborhood, when you get to the playground and if you're a young fella and you're showing some prowess, then that starts to feed your ego. Folks start to give you a level of respect and adulation that is um, pretty good. It feels good and it, it fuels you. So so that that's kind of the progression. So uh, probably by the time I was 11 or 12, I felt like I was um, a little better than guys my own age. And that gave me confidence to feel like I did, could keep did, getting Did better. you get a name? Did the street give you a name, Clark? No, <laughs> no, they didn't. No, not, a, not right away. I got a nickname in high school once I started to perform on the high school stage. A writer uh, put the moniker of Special K on me, in part because my last name is Kellogg. I mean, it's just a good play on words. There's a serial called Special K. My last name is Kellogg. I spell it exactly like the serial company. And I was doing some pretty um, cool things on the basketball court mm-hmm. as a young player at my high school. And that started to pick up some steam and recognition. So that made, but that nobody on the street, really, they just called me Log okay. for short. A lot of my dad's buddies called him Log. And still to this day, some of my friends called me Log. So, but no, um, no other nickname. That's awesome. Special K. I got it now. <laughs> you know, Cleveland in the 70s could be like a lot of major markets. Obviously, there's a history in the 60s and such. You know, what person mm-hmm. or thing early in your life impacted you, helped shape you to this day? You know, because a lot of what happens to us as young makes us who we are as we get older. Was there anything yeah. that was defining early in your days growing up in Cleveland that you can recall that was impactful, eventful, meaningful for you? Not anything particularly. I do recall my dad having to put on his riot gear as a police officer in mm. the late 60s 
as there was unrest across the country and he had to arm himself with his helmet and his riot gear. And I'm seven, eight years old, a little confused, but concerned and worried and so forth. I vaguely remember that. And I didn't have enough age to really embrace any context around it, but I do remember being a little scared about that. You know, one thing that happened that really has had a profound impact on me, I was a young kid, maybe six, seven, eight years old, and there was a one of my aunts, we were at a function and um, I met her parents or saw a picture of her parents. She showed me a picture of her parents. And as kids are prone to do, they say exactly what they think without mm. any filter. And I referred to them mm. as ugly. I said, mm. boy, they're ugly. Not in a malicious kind of way, just mm-hmm. in a kid kind of way. And my mom reprimanded me for that because it was just insensitive. It was a kid statement, but it was insensitive, inappropriate. And to this day, I don't call anyone ugly. I've never called, I just can't call anybody ugly. Um, So that was something that really stamped me when I, and again, I was really, I mean, I I, I remember it, but I couldn't have been more than, Mm -hmm. you know, first grade maybe. And it wasn't until we'd be sitting around as a family and, you know, talking about folks or maybe having conversation about who's attractive, who's not. And, oh, they, you know, and my siblings would go ahead and just say that that person was ugly. Mm-hmm. And I, I just couldn't say it. I might be able to say they weren't that attractive, or, but I, I just would not. I, I just, to this day, and that's, you know, I'm 61 now, man. And I still just, I just, that's not something I'll ever say about anyone is that they're ugly. Definitely. Those moms let you know when you push, push a button that they feel yeah, like there's yeah, a, a yeah. moment and of growth. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about, is it safe to say you're a huge Buckeye fan? Is it safe to say? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, man. I've dr- I've dr- I'm drowning in that Ohio <laughs> State Kool-Aid, bro. And, and years later, they still are a very top-notch school as well as athletic program. We know the AD Kudos to Gene. He's built probably yeah. one of the, obviously the nation's largest athletic department and um, the most teams, et cetera. Yeah. You could have gone to a lot of schools. What were your reasons for going to college and Ohio State in, in particular? Yeah, you know, my parents sold the seed. Neither one of mm. them had gone to college, my mom or dad. My dad had had a taste through his athletic ability, but for a number of reasons, just didn't stick it out and ultimately came back to Cleveland, married my mom, and they started their family and their lives. And he had a career with the police department. Didn't have perhaps the kind of push that maybe would have helped him stay in school from his family. And so they were adamant about us considering and exploring college from an education standpoint, from a standpoint of improving your life being able to raise your standard of living. I didn't really understand all of that. I just kind of got bits and pieces at the time, but I knew that I wanted to be productive and achieving. I knew that I wanted to excel in basketball, but also in life. And I don't really know where a lot of some of that came from, Kevin. I mean, some of it was, you know, what I saw or read a little bit. I just always had this desire to be successful. And I think some of it was probably in conversations my folks would have with me, um, some of the things I would see, seeing other athletes that I looked up to 
have success in their sport and some transition well afterwards. So it all, and then I had some people come into my life, a, a mentor or two that talked about excellence and success. So I think all of that played a role in uh, trying to attend college. And then when basketball became such an integral part of me having a chance to go to college, it was going to actually play, pay for my college education. Then that's when it became pretty serious. And Ohio State, the whole state of Ohio recruited me, Kevin. <laughs> Ohio State is a huge force, not only in Columbus and the state and even country, international now because of the magnitude of the institution, the, alum, the alumni base. Um, I think we currently have over 700,000 living alums wow. all over the world that have attended Ohio State. And obviously the athletic prowess under um, Gene Smith's leadership currently, but Andy mm -hmm. Geiger before him and, and others. Um, that's a tre tremendous tradition in history. But the whole state recruited me. There were players here that were Ohio born and bred. Herb mm -hmm. Williams, who played in the NBA, he and I were teammates both in college and the pros. Calvin Ramsey was an NBA player, Jim Smith for a short time. So they had players as they were recruiting me that had the makings of being excellent and competing for championships. And so that I saw on the court. In some ways, I was thinking, man, this is a powerful institution. If I align myself here, people could, you know, often told me that. This is a special place, and if you go to school here, you'll get a good education, but you'll also be part of a network that can actually help you succeed in life. I didn't fully understand it in 17, 18, 19, but clearly have, have seen it work itself out in my life and in the lives of others, and um, I'm glad that I chose it. I chose to go here, but it was primarily what was available on the court, who I was going to play with, quality guys, good players, close enough to Cleveland that my dad could pretty much come and see me play regularly. Uh, great reputation as an institution, um, ac academically and athletically. And then the loyalty of the fan base and the support they give the institution um, and how they came at me as an Ohio kid and how they'd like me to be part of that. All of that led me to choose Ohio State over uh, Michigan ultimately, but I also visited Notre Dame and Kentucky too. Oh, wow. Man, what a what a great way to break down. A lot of times we, we have young people listen and they kind of try to figuring out where and how to go and what decisions. So that was extremely helpful. You put in a, a, a ton of work at OSU and became an elite player. You know, what was it like to to be drafted top 10 in the NBA and and, and and how was the NBA and the players during the time that you played? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a dream come true, Kevin, to be drafted. I was 21 years old. My mom and dad went to New York with me. Rosie went to New York. That's where the draft was mm -hmm. being held at that point. I'm in the Felt Forum in New York, and I was one of the guys invited to be there personally. And so my agent, my dad and mom, and my, my, my soon-to-be wife all joined. And my mom and dad had not traveled a bunch. Um, Rosie, I think that was her mm -hmm. first plane ride. And um, to be in the position to have my name called, man, it was uh, it was special. It was a uh, mm -hmm. dream realized. It was a dream realized, man. Great excitement and memories around that day of, uh, man, it's happening. I'm here. And right away, you go from being grateful for the opportunity to thinking about how you're going to prove that you belong. You know, what is it going to take for me to step into this space and make a name for myself and be a productive NBA player? 
And so, yeah, it was, but all, but at, at, at its foundation, the dream realized, man, so much excitement around it and so much anticipation about being amongst. And in that time, I mean, the early 80s, the Lakers, mm. Celtics, Magic, Dr. J, wow. Larry Bird, only 23 teams in the league at that time. There's 30 now, but there are only 23. So it was a smaller number. The league wasn't nearly as prosperous as it is now, but the players were high level. I mean, tons of Hall of Famers at that time playing in the league. Uh, and I'm part of that. You know, that was the thing, too. Like, oh, man, this is. Um, and then, you know, exhibition games were playing the Sixers. There's Dr. J, guy I've looked up to and admired. There's Moses Malone. And we get to, the, you know, see the Lakers and there's Kareem and Magic and Michael Cooper. And James Worthy was a peer of mine. We were the same draft class. but some of the legendary guys that you've only watched from a distance, now you're part of their fraternity. And it's a lifelong fraternity. But the guys that went before us when I got there in the early 80s and all of the guys that have come after, to this day, it's a fraternity that's pretty special and unique because I think it's roughly maybe 6,000 guys that have played in the Mm -hmm. NBA to this point in the history of the league. League came online in 46, I believe. And so we're 75, 76 years into the NBA's history, and there have been probably 6,000 or so players that have been part of that league. And mm. I'm one of them, you know, and that's, um, that's pretty Absolutely. special. Absolutely. What an what a honor. And certainly I know it's something that you take um, very serious, the work that went in. But, you know, obviously as great as that was, I mean, did you have any challenges in the NBA, you know, any dark days? And, you know, what did you do, like, when you had to overcome those, maybe a a major challenge there? You know, I really didn't, Kevin, early on. I was a promising young player. The challenge for for me personally was that our team wasn't very good, and we were in the bottom of the league as a team. And I was hopeful to be part of trying to help resurrect the Pacers to be relevant and to be competitive and to be a playoff team. And I had, you know, my knee injuries ended my career prematurely after only really three and a half years of playing, but I was on the Mm -hmm. roster for five. And it wasn't until after I retired that the Pacers started to make some headway as a competitive team. And so that was difficult to be a pro, but to not have the kind of success that I had enjoyed in high school and to some degree in college. that was hard, but I never lost sight of just continuing to try to work and grow and get better. And then ultimately, the difficult, the most difficult time of, of, of my life in the NBA is as I was dealing with my knee injury uh, that ultimately ended my career. I mean, at the time I had my first, I had three knee surgeries, one in 84, one in 85, and one in 86. The first one I came back from and played a full season. After the second one in 1985, that was kind of the beginning mm-hmm. of the end. I never got back to a point where I could play a full season. I think I actually played only 23 games over the final two years of my career because of my cartilage in my left knee. So that was difficult. And it was then that I came to a place of faith in God through Christ and surrendered my life to to God through Christ to put God on the throne of my life Mm -hmm. instead of basketball. And that changed everything. Even though I had to give up basketball and it no longer was part of my life as a player, the fact that I had found peace and hope and direction and promise in a relationship with God who gives me life and breath, that really changed the course of my life. Clark, you 
made the pivot after your career was over into broadcasting before it became the rage is one of the top careers that athletes, um, former athletes look at going into, right? You were way ahead of the game, in my opinion. How did you know that commentating was a career path for you? And how did you, how did you get the job? I mean, because it seemed like you went rare to there, like just like that. <laughs> no, there was a process, but I didn't know. I did not know that that was for me. Mm. I knew I wanted to stay close to the game. The Pacers made it clear because of the equity I had built on the court and in the community that they thought they could find a role for me to continue to be part of the franchise. And I was interested in exploring that, but I didn't know what direction, community relations, perhaps coaching, neither of those appealed to me. And so they were hiring a new play-by-play guy, play-by-play voice for the radio, Mike Inglis, who now does Miami Heat games. Mm. But Mike was coming from Toronto and and was going to work for the local station in Indianapolis and also do Pacers radio. And they felt I could be an asset to him. Having just come off the floor, I was always pretty communicative, uh, interacted well with the media, um, represented the franchise and myself well. So they felt like that might be an opportunity for me to create another path and be connected to the franchise. So August of 87, I retire. October of 87, I'm doing Indiana Pacers radio, stepping into that fray, in addition to getting a chance to do some Cleveland State University games on TV that same season. My hometown of Cleveland, Wow. they know I'm doing Indiana Pacers radio games, and they reach out to me and say, would you be interested in doing some TV? We've got a good team here at Cleveland State. The general manager of the station that's carrying the games graduated from my high school. I followed my career, knew of me, um, had a level of respect for what I I had done and thought I could add some elements to their broadcast. So I, out of the gate, Kevin, I'm doing 70 plus Pacer games on radio and eight to 10 Cleveland State University games on local television. Wow. I'm raw, rough around the edges, but I've had a pretty strong name recognition and name following through my high school career in Cleveland, college at Ohio State and in the Big Ten, playing for the Pacers and now doing Pacers radio. And it comes together. And once I start doing it, I've always enjoyed words. I've always enjoyed reading. Mm -hmm. I've always thought of myself as a student of the game, Mm -hmm. a smart player and that kind of stuff. And so it just seemed to fit. And once I started doing it, man, I said, I think I can do this well. I think I can become good at it. You know, because I would listen to announcers when I'm watching games. I would listen to them, and there were some guys I enjoyed. And it would be a great way to stay involved in the game. And I, I enjoyed everything about it and just went to work asking people that I'm working with, how do I get better? What are some of the keys to doing this well? And establish a routine of preparation and learn from some other folks that do it at a high level and stay with them, you know, stay true to who I am. And, you know, I've got a unique knowledge of the game. When you get to the NBA, you've pretty much gotten your graduate degree in basketball (laughs) when you think about it. You know, all the coaches you've seen, the practices you've been to, the scouting report, all of that, you have a sense of it. And if you can bring that insight, that behind the scenes, on the court insight in a way that viewers can understand it and add a level of entertainment and personality to it, then you've got a chance to to do it and uh, add value. Right. I mean, you're talking to people the vast majority who have not been where you've been in the locker room, on the court, in competition, in practices, and you have a knowledge of the game that's uh, 
a little deeper and broader than the average fan. And if you can communicate that, you've got a chance to, to add some value. So that's how it happened, Kevin. That's how it happened, man. And wow. I, I got better. I was doing everything, pregame interviews, um, postgame wraparound report, uh, plus call in the game. So all of that stuff, man, helped me establish a, um, a nice little niche that continues to, 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 to take place. Yeah, it seems like, you know, to me, it's obvious that a lot of athletes, communication majors who love sports, um, sports management students, you know, they want to get into commentating to some degree. You know, you talked about, you know, obviously the work and the good side, but what, what were there any challenges uh, you encountered in your professional journey as a leading commentator to get to the top? Like, I mean, no, not really. People were helpful, Kevin. I was fortunate. My broadcast partners, mm-hmm. the folks in the truck. Uh, producers, directors, all so it, it was the work. Uh, it was the work. Then, would you say yeah. that got you? Oh, clearly, clearly. I mean, you've got to show a desire to learn the craft and work at it. And I think people appreciate that. They appreciate that when they see an earnestness and a um, genuine desire to um, get better and to realize that you don't, even though you know basketball, you don't know this side of what you're doing. You've got to learn and grow into the broadcasting component. And so I was real I was willing to to start from the bottom and just begin where I you know begin at the level that I was at and try to try to get better so I could grow in the profession. But yeah, I, and I embrace the work. I mean when you've been an athlete, you know practices are part of being able to perform better on game day. You know that's an essential part of trying to get the best out of yourself. So that was not an issue. And I love to read. I follow the game closely. So all of that kind of fit my aptitude and my interest. And once I saw it could be, you know, a way to make a living, I said, shoot, I'm, I don't want to just be mediocre. I'm going to try to excel in this thing, be really good. And lo and behold, yeah. It's interesting. You actually expanded your role with the Pacers. You became a, a player development director there. Even vice president level, don't let me embellish here. You can correct me, but you were while commentating, you you went into another role. Um, what do, what do you, what did you think about that? And then what makes a person a great support person who works with athletes? We have people who are listening who are either wanting to be an athlete development profession, they want to do mental health, they want to um be athletic trainers sometimes they may want to study how do we help this next generation athletes all that what you experienced this at the highest level what what would you say some of the attributes and skill sets things and people need to be aware of because you played the game as well yeah you know i think a servant's heart desiring to help people be their best that requires listening being a good listener understanding the world that athletes are in taking the time to understand how they um, are wired. So listening is huge, I think. Listening and then showing a desire to want to help others be their best, being able to communicate and gain a level of trust that your role is for the purpose of trying to move them up and forward. And that is, and, and there was a certain level of credibility that you have when you've been where they are. And that clearly was something I could leverage. They Players and, and athletes, when you've shared some level of experience or achievement in the same arena, then that does give you a level of um, credibility 
and trust. But then you have to continue to earn that through the work you do to understand and learn and provide opportunities for them to learn and grow for their benefit. I think that's the other thing that it can't really ever be about you mm-hmm. when you're in a position to be supportive of others. It has to always be centered on how do we help you become who you'd like to be and do what you'd like to do. I'm here solely to help you navigate that, do that, and be that. And there can't be any strings attached to your own self-interest. That, to me, particularly in the world of athletics, and especially at the professional level, because these athletes, male and female, often have people coming to them consistently mm-hmm. for something. Yes. For something, a favor, financial help, an endorsement, um, association. Mm-hmm. And that tends to wear people down, and it creates a wall and a barrier between an athlete and those that might be desiring to be helpful. So I think it's, imper- I think it's paramount and imperative that you establish a level of trust based on wanting to be a servant and wanting to serve and help as opposed to what it is you might get out of a relationship or access. So that those are, and I think that's universal, Kevin. I don't think that's just in the world of sports. I think anytime you're going to be engaged or involved in helping someone else, it really does have to be about that. It can't be about what you're getting out of it. It has to be, look, I have some tools, some people that I think could be useful in your journey Mm -hmm. in helping you. And then trying to help um, those that you're seeking to support, trying to help them begin to see for themselves ways they can own their growth and development by using resources and what's available through other people. I love that response. It's, it's so helpful to, to hear your perspective because you've, you've been at both levels and you have a wealth of knowledge that continues to you know amaze me around these areas i, I just gained two insights and i need to write those down right now here <laughs> um, well you're you're a voracious reader and note taker man and i've i've benefited from having a chance to to work with you to be mm-hmm. uh, mutual friends and to be journeying together and trying to bring out the best in, in one another. So that's uh, that's a two-way street. Absolutely. I appreciate that, man. I certainly, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, you, you've worked with some great people in the business that you're in. You know, give us a little insight on what it's like to, to be around commentators like Barkley and, <laughs> and, and Gumbo oh, and, and, and Kenny Smith, Greg Gumbo and Kenny Smith. What, what, what's that like? Man, man? I've been so you're... fortunate throughout my time in broadcasting from the local level at Cleveland State with my first partner, Denny Schreiner, and some of the other partners I've had early in my broadcasting journey at the Atlantic 10 Network, the Big East Network. Um, too many partners, oh, wow. producers, and directors to name them all, but all have had a positive impact because, and some of it I think is how I've tried to approach being a teammate. I think that's important to be a good teammate because nobody succeeds by themselves or just because of themselves. There's always other people involved in in helping you. But the personalities you mentioned, and many people are associated with me through the men's basketball tournament in March Madness. It's such a big time sporting event and really popular for those who are sports fans. And they get to see Greg Gumbel and Seth Davis and Kenny Smith and Charles Barkley, 
Ernie Johnson, mm-hmm. Wally Zerbiak, and the guys, and um, and even some of the folks behind the scenes make it happen. But the personalities are authentic mm-hmm. and genuine. That's the one thing I'll say about everybody that I've had the pleasure of working with. So we've been partners with Turner since 2011 in carrying the NCAA tournament. And that Has it been that long? Wow. Really, yeah, 2011. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's been that long, man. So it's been a wonderful journey. And the personalities, again, are authentic. They're genuine. They're um, serious about their work, but not they don't take themselves too seriously. They know it's entertainment and fun. And there's a responsibility we have to be informative. But when we're having fun, the viewers have fun. Mm. And the fun has to be authentic. It can't be, can't be manipula- manipulated or fake. And it's genuine. I mean, we have a great love for the game. We have tremendous respect and admiration and um, care for each other. And that comes across, man. But it's fun. It's fun. And Greg, I've been with him since 1998. Greg Gumbel, Seth came on board probably in the early 2000s. And those guys are consistent partners. And then the Turner mm-hmm. family members are um, with us during the tournament. But it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it, look, fun. it looks like yeah, great. It's a lot of fun. fun. It's as fun as it looks, Kevin. Yeah, okay. Looks, I like it that. Really I like is. that. That's not, I mean, and we have a great time when we're not on air. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when the camera's off of us, you're off watching the game. Uh, we're having fun. We're debating. We're talking. We're laughing. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's a wonderful environment. And the, and the property itself, I mean. It engenders excitement, enthusiasm, energy, mm-hmm. positivity. I mean, the game of basketball, bracket, tournament, and yeah. college kids playing, one and done, crown. I mean, all of that lends itself to uh, being being quite a bit of fun. It's it's important to know that, I mean, you're obviously a part of an industry like sports that, you know, galvanizes so many people, but there's a disruptor. And I'd love to get your um, take on this in terms of, um, I know you're passionate about what's going on in college sports, uh, but what's, in your opinion, going on in the NIL industry? And for those who don't know, name, image, and likeness has become, you know, a huge part of collegiate athletics and the athletic experience in the last two years. What's your take on the current state of the name, image, and likeness? Is it here to stay? And how will it impact really the education for student athletes and how college and athletes will go forward? And really, what does it mean for the sports industry overall? Yeah, there's a lot of meat on that bone, a lot of layers to it, Kevin. There yeah. really are. And for me, the first re- reaction is that it's long overdue. Mm-hmm. I've always felt that some of the rules that were in place and the prohibition of being able to monetize your name, image, and likeness because you were on scholarship was unfair. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't be penalized as a student athlete for earning a college scholarship. And Mm -hmm. that's basically what happened. In an effort to kind of legislate and legislate competitive balance, there there were these archaic rules on the books that an individual, a student athlete on scholarship, now an individual student could always take advantage of marketplace opportunities if they were there for them based on their name, image, or brand. But only student athletes were prohibited from stepping into that water and taking advantage of those opportunities. And that Mm -hmm. just isn't fair. So it's long overdue. It clearly has created some disruption and some chaos because most new things do until they find a level level of consistency with some guardrails and parameters. Um, I do think that will ultimately be the reality that there will be, whether it's federal legislation 
across the board, but there will be some level of there will be some type of guardrails around it. Mm-hmm. But I don't think there's anything wrong with student athletes being able to capitalize on the brand that their name engendered. And some of it is tied to the institution. What I hope happens, and what I'm a huge proponent of, is institutions being proactive and creative in how you keep the educational mission and component of the experience at the center of this, because there is a wonderful opportunity to actually do some real life teaching and education around developing life skills in the arena of business and marketplace dynamics, interacting with companies. What is a good deal? Why do brands affiliate or desire to affiliate with you? How can you perhaps forego a short-term transactional opportunity for a better long-term transformational opportunity? How do you leverage your social media platforms in a way that can bring you income but also do good? The money and the big business element of it is so prominent and so big, and we're part of it as TV networks. We're a huge part of it. These are unique rights to have and own when you're talking college football, particularly in college basketball. The media rights are one of the last bastions of really valuable television property because of the unpredictability of what happens in the sporting arena. So I understand that, but I don't want to dismiss the opportunity to keep education sent. I know that many desire to be pros, but we also know the vast majority won't be pros in their respective sports. That's right. But there's tremendous value in the experience of being a college athlete and what that can mean for your life. And for those who have the ability to monetize that while in school, that should be part of the equation. And it is now and educating them around and through that Mm -hmm. and educating the institution, keeping the institutions committed, one, to making sure student athletes have everything they need to get a meaningful degree in the time that they commit to do that. And student athletes have a responsibility on the other side of that to pursue a meaningful degree and to not just chase the bag, (laughs) to not just chase the bag. Right. The bag is there and we should get the bag when you have the means to do so with your name, image, and brand. But that shouldn't be the end all be all in terms of developing. Yes. Developing holistically because There's a component of having a bag that can be detrimental if you just have the bag and no education or no understanding or no willingness to get understanding about how you manage and maximize the bag. So I think there's just some tremendous opportunities and it's going to take some, you know, significant um, commitment on the part of institutions and leaders because this isn't the conversation most are having. All you, a lot of what you hear is how it's, um, disrupting recruiting, how some institutions are buying players, and the intention of NIL was not for it to be a way to fill the coffers of your team. It was meant to be a fair way for student athletes to participate in the marketplace based on their name, image, and likeness value. Wow. Well said. I want to know, you, you've been you know, really bestowed some pretty high honors, but to become 
a board of trustee at your university, the Ohio State. How did you attain that opportunity and and really manage it for a number of years? You did. I, I think you, that's it's a, a nine year commitment or something. It's or? a nine year appointment. Yeah, yeah it's a governor appointment. It's a governor appointment in conjunction with the nominating committee for the board of trustees. There are certain skill sets, certain demographics that you're trying to fill in the matrix of trustees. When And it's here at Ohio State, it's anywhere from 16 to 20 trustees. But a govern, it's a governor appointment. Um, and again, in, in kind of tacit partnership with the current board of trustees nominating committee as they're looking at skill sets, representation. and. Um, there's always a desire to have someone or some ones, a couple of people perhaps on the board that have some um, athletic background engagement. And uh, that's been a pretty consistent desire over the last couple of decades that um, someone from the world of sports, because of the size of the athletic program here, should be part of the board of trustees to bring that perspective and knowledge and vantage point. So that was one of the areas that, or on the matrix that I scratched. And then having served my alma mater in other capacities on the Alumni Association Board for mm-hmm. five years prior to becoming a trustee, uh, doing some other things in conjunction with the university, I think all of that combined to put me on the candidate list. Diversity, being a black mm-hmm. man, mm-hmm. clearly another box when you're thinking about elements that we'd like to have represented on board. So it was that. And um, I was surprised when I got reached out to Kevin, really. I Someone reached out, let me know that there was real strong consideration for me to serve in that capacity. Would I be willing? And I got the call um, from the governor, Ted Strickland, at that time. Um, and I was, I was thrilled and excited and honored to be asked. And it was a great experience the nine years. I was on the board from 2010 to 2019 and saw a lot of growth at the university, saw some challenges. Mm-hmm. And the dynamics of how at that time was a $6 billion institution. Now it's closing in on eight or nine billion as a billion. budget. Billion. billion. Wow. We've got <laughs> major academic medical center here mm-hmm. building another act, um, act building another um, hospital tower on the on the West Campus, all types of facility enhancement, both academic and athletic. So it was a great, great education. People that are brilliant in their respective areas of uh, of work part of the board of trustees and then being able to see the impact the the um the um, impact and the and the breadth of impact and influence that Ohio State has um yeah. state nationwide and worldwide was eye opening and it gave me a sense of pride i mean this is where i got my college degree and played basketball here and to know we're developing the kind of students and leaders across the country and world that are doing meaningful things is um, a source of pride but I was humbled to be asked, honored to, to have served. And- yeah, I asked that question because it's important to note that there was a body of work that had to happen before that. And I think yeah. you've leveraged it quite well. And you didn't necessarily do all that to get to this, but it's a byproduct of keeping yes, your correct. name correct. and keeping correct. your agenda yeah. at a certain yeah. level where you got noticed. And I think a lot yeah. of athletes can land in really unique spaces such as this. This is very elite and very coveted, like when you played. So it's a real important aspect. No, I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it was a byproduct. I never sought out to be a trustee, but I did seek to live a life that served others, that was excellent 
in as many ways as possible. And again, not without failures and disappointments, but again, having a steadfastness towards trying to um, be my best and to help others in their quest to be their best. And again, people tend to notice when you step into areas of of service and support and philanthropy and um, doing it with no real agenda is is something that I think people um, pick up on. This is this is very good to know. You know, a lot of people don't know that beyond the the commentating space. You, to me, I've witnessed firsthand here. You know, your elite leadership ability. You as a businessman and as a community leader. You know, we 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 go through lots of transitions. You've been. You most recently started becoming very strategic about your career and 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 began to work with uh, a company like ours, ProtoCEO, yeah. to help your next transitions into areas of interest of yours in business in particular. How has having a team help you in your transition into business uh, go? How is that going for you? It's going, it's going so well. I really wish, wish I would have done it 10 years ago, quite honestly. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I just, I thought about it. I kind of worked around the edges of it and just kind of Loft through on my own, but man, to have folks that really are strategic and committed to helping me and other clients transition well and tap into the various capitals that we all have mm-hmm. um, based on our experiences and what we've done and where we've been and how those can be leveraged for good and aligned with your interest and passion. I've always had an interest in business. I was a marketing major in college, got my property and casualty insurance license through a mentor of mine at 18 years old, worked in an insurance agency during a couple of my summers in high school and college, and got a vast education in the reality of what business looks like from an Ohio State alum who was involved in helping recruit me, but has become a lifelong mentor and friend for over 45 years. And to be able to look at that relationship and see what it's meant. And now to have a relationship with Pro the CEO where we're thinking about how to steward better and more effectively and more optimally where God has placed me in uh, terms of access, relationships, resources. Um, it's just something that I knew I needed to do because I couldn't do it myself and I wasn't doing, I wasn't living fully fruitfully in terms of different opportunities and things that I have access to an opportunity for and needed the help of a team to start to uh, streamline my thinking and uh, mm-hmm. push me forward in ways that um, I probably, and I know I wouldn't be able to do um, myself. Uh, it takes a mm-hmm. team and I come from a team environment in the world of sport. Um, and that really resonates. So, I, again, I wish I would have stepped into um, this kind of relationship several years ago <laughs> because I lost some ground. But we only can work from where we are. Yes, sir. Well, you've been uh, fantastic to work with on our end. And we certainly have seen, you know, huge gains on your side. I think, you know, the best is yet to come, to be quite honest. Well, we're honest. hopeful. We're going to keep plugging away. Yeah. And I'm confident in yeah. you and your team, and I'm going to do my part, and we'll trust God to bring it together in a way that, that, that makes him smile and 
benefits of it. Well said. So let's let's step it up and we're going to get to the close of this thing. I'm taking you into the speed round. All right, Uh-oh. I'm going to ask you 10 questions, short responses, short, short, short. Okay. And you have to give it to us right away. All right. Yeah. If you were going to write a book, what would it be about, Clark? Oh, I'm that that one stumped me as soon as I had this one in advance and I, I didn't have an answer. My story. My story. Okay. It would be my story. Memoir. Okay. We'll let you do that. Okay. What's the last thing you have built? I haven't built anything, but I do I do finish puzzles two or three a month. Fifteen hundred <laughs> piece puzzle. The best place you and Rosie have vacation ever. Bermuda probably, although Hawaii was our honeymoon, but I'm gonna go Bermuda. Who or what inspires you to get up and get going every day? The goodness of the Lord. All right. Something interesting about you we did not learn on this podcast today. I'm a neat freak. Everything has to be in <laughs> order and in its place. I can see that. I kind of can you see can that. Yeah. What's one of your favorite movies of all time? Wow. It's a Wonderful Life and Shawshank Redemption. Oh, okay. That's one of mine. It's top three for me. Okay, okay. We got some yeah, synergy yeah. there. Who would you like to interview in sports or entertainment and have not yet? There's nobody really. I would okay. not, I mean, I, I, that was what, no, there's not any person that I would, uh, that I'm clamoring to interview. Yeah, no. All right. Outside of sports or entertainment, somebody in general, globally in the world. No? no. I couldn't come okay. up with one. All I right, didn't want come. to try to force something. All right. What ritual do you do daily that would surprise people? Um, <laughs> I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> I was thinking you're going to say, man, I read the Bible. No, All I right. mean, but that wouldn't surprise folks that know me. Okay, yeah, this is yeah, true. Yeah, that this wouldn't surprise true. folks. They'd... What are you most proud of outside of your professional career? The family that the Lord has given me through my wife, Rosie, our children and grandchildren. Yeah. Well, the, I would start with my partner. And lover and friend mm-hmm. and wife. That's what I'm most proud of and most thankful for. Mm-hmm. If you could do one thing in the world to change the world in a positive way, what would it be? Help people understand the power of love. All right. Well said. You have finished the speed round. Thank you, Clark <laughs> Kellogg. All right. For any student, high achiever, athlete looking to make a transition, what's your, your last advice to them, Clark? Own your development and be intentional about it. Your total development. Own and be intentional about your total development as a person. Mm, I like that. Own your development. Yeah, own Don't put and it on be anybody. Intentional about intentional. your personal development, which encompasses every aspect of development spiritual, emotional, mental, physical. But that would be it. Own and be intentional about your personal development. You know, how can our listeners find you online, follow you, stay up all things Clark Kellogg? Where can we I'm a seasonal I'm anything? a seasonal Twitter presence and social media presence. What is that? Mean? Yeah, I'm basically season. during the hoop season I'm engaged on Twitter and oh, Instagram. Gotcha. But otherwise I divest myself a bit during the off season. So starting about now, early December through probably April, I'll be bouncing in and out on Twitter and engaging with folks sharing some of my life journey and the world of college hoops, but that would be it. I don't have a web page or any of that currently, but I know you'll be nudging me to move in that direction. Absolutely. In closing, thank you, thank you, thank you, Clark Kellogg, for being on the hit show today. We would love to stay in touch with you, and we're going to put this episode for those to learn and share on social media so everyone hears your story. There are many transitions 
and hope you'll do the same with your followers. Okay. Yes, sir. You know, it show um, to me should be saved for everyone who listens to podcasts because you learn things about the hidden and most undervalued skills for some of the most skilled people in the world. The skill of transition, in my opinion, is one of the most hidden but most needed skills for people in sports and business and beyond. So in closing, we say thank you, Clark Kellogg, and thank you for allowing Pro to CEO uh, to bring you on the Hit Show podcast, the platform from the Athletes Plus uh, podcast network and the Institute of Coaching um, in the College of Health and Human Performance at the University of Florida. I'm Kevin Carr, host of the Hit Show, but I'm also the CEO of Pro to CEO. And if any athlete organization um, also individuals and teams need transition support we're here to help go to protoceo.com and we can be able to begin to interact with you by clicking on the contact link look i don't end the hit show without our signature outro i'm kevin carr host of the hit show and this is clark kellogg glad to have been here with you kevin Excellent. And you have listened to Clark and his multiple successful transitions on the hit show. Thanks for being here, Clark. This podcast is a production of Athlete Plus, the people, stories, and science behind elite athletes and teams. Athlete Plus is the official podcast network of the Institute for Coaching Excellence, a research, education, and outreach center in the College of Health and Human Performance at the University of Florida.